0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in History. I'm your host, R. Grant Kleiser. With me today is Dr. Anne Goldman. Dr. Goldman is a professor of English at Sonoma State University and author of Take My Word, Autobiographical Innovations of Ethnic American Working Women, Continental Divides, Revisioning American Literature, and Maria Amparo Ruiz de Burton, Critical and Pedagogical Perspectives. She has published essays and fiction pieces in many journals while being nominated for a National Magazine Award and recognized with the National Endowment for the Humanities Award, as well as an a mason Getty Fellowship. Today, I have the pleasure to talk with her about her new book entitled Stargazing in the Atomic Age, which has already been awarded a Kirkus Star Review. Part intellectual history, part personal narrative, this book demonstrates how Jewish scientists, musicians, writers, and artists were able to create beauty and tremendous achievement during the 20th century, a time we often associate with purely affliction and horror for the Jewish people. Dr. Goldman charts the verve, energy, and unyielding spirit of people like Einstein, George Gershwin, Mark Chagall, and Saul Bellow, as they, in her words, quote, turn the awful into awe through their scientific and artistic contributions in this era. Dr. Goldman, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and congratulations on your new work.
1: Thank you, and thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Our pleasure. So to start off the conversation, I'd like to first talk to you about what inspired you to write this piece. Why this book and why now?
1: Uh, well, if I were going to be flippant, and um, um, I-, I would say that um, I have always had a tendency toward contention or pushing against established wisdom. And I think um, I see my father as the driver um, for that um, characteristic in, in my own nature, and also as a driver for this book. So, um, you know, Jewish history um, writ large is. Is almost always framed as a series of calamities. And while that is um, undeniably true, what that narrative leaves out is that in between catastrophes, um, there are periods of great um, um, achievement, there are periods of peace. Um, um, I, I think what I would also say is that I'm, I'm probably pushing against notions of history that foreground. Um, or that define the word historical event, uh, synonymous with, with conflict and war. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to do was to think about material history, daily life and the, the life of the mind and the life of the mind, um, happens whether there are God forbid bombs exploding nearby or, hmm. um, whether, um, whether life is, is, is bucolic and peaceful. So, um, that's what I was really struck by was, um, the fact that thinking about Jewish life need not only, um, be thinking about melancholy and about affliction, um, that in fact, there's tremendous energy. Um, I mean, I think this is true of all peoples. Um, and I wanted to look very clearly and, and, and specifically at the. Extraordinary efforts of mine that produced um, really um, stunning uh, work um, across mm. the arts and sciences, and then and and because I, I was developing this argument, I really wanted to locate it squarely in the middle part of the 20th century. I think also, um, you know, thinking about our own day, it's a way of um, maintaining hope, of maintaining perspective, and of um, mm. reminding me that. Um, and, and readers um, that even when things look very difficult, um, that there are, that we are always, um, we carry on and we, we are doing remarkable things.
0: That's uh, certainly an important point to, to talk about in, in this new year of 2021 um, and something that I think the book says loud and clear uh, as a message of hope. So that's great. Uh, going off of that sort of the, the intellectual journey that you were briefly referencing. If I'm correct, I believe that your titular uh, essay or chapter, uh, Stargazing in the Atomic Age, uh, which discusses the scientists behind the Manhattan Project, was first written or first conceived in uh, 2006 or you know thereabouts. And that other essays and chapters were also com- first composed uh, over a decade ago. So, you know, when did you first think that these essays, these ideas would become a book? And and how have they changed over time as you've been thinking about them?
1: So I thought of them as a collection fairly early on. Um, I don't know that I realized I was writing um, uh, what feels like the the kind of overture of the book, if you will, um, in the titular essay and that, that, but that really is, um, what it became. And when I look back at the essays, I see that what I tried to do, um, as well as foreground, um, innovation in science, um, um, and to yoke, um, I guess one of the things that I was interested in doing was, um, again, to sort of push against these, um, conventional notions of, um, of Jewish life, so I thought I would take the Holocaust, which feels like a black hole um, for, for all of us, sort of sucking in all kinds of life and, and energy and not leaving anything. And then to think about that strange fact that while um, Jews were um, central um, as victims um, of the Holocaust, they were also central as scientists in the um, development of, of the bomb um at the same time and that that seemed an interesting juxtaposition um, for me to think about so that that kept me going for quite a while um, but i did you know i write slowly um i read uh, i take um writing essays as an excuse to learn mm. <laughs> so um <laughs> i just um thought i you know i would like to work across fields and um so i just sort of set about in my um, turtle way to um take to look at painting um to look at physics uh, eventually to look at math that's the latest essay that was actually written um quite recently um to look at literature my own field but all of that took a great deal of time and um i i really many of these essays um i spent months um reading for because i was trespassing on other people's um Uh, terrain, and I I felt um, that I should have at least um, some sort of basic sense of of the field before I, in my typical brash way, um, began to write about them.
0: (laughs) Of course, of course. So speaking of those subjects and and those people you chose, in your introduction, you stated that as you cast about for illustrations of of particularly Jewish accomplishment in this era, the challenge was not to locate, but to limit the number. So, how did you actually make these choices for for whom and and what to write about?
1: So, um, in a way, they 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 didn't even seem like choices to me. I mean, what ended up happening was that I I would read about people or I would think about um, about particular um, innovators or artists um, that who somehow felt um, already familiar to me. So, for instance, Saul Bellow. Um, I really only had to read, you know, one, one novel, um, to realize, oh, um, here is a, here are characters. Um, so in, Augie March, for instance, here are characters who, who feel like, um, the kinds of people, um, I grew up with. And, and this is where I should say that one of, again, one of the primary drivers for the book, although I, I didn't, I. I didn't quite see how that worked at the time was my own father um, who um, died actually in 19 let's see um, 10 it's been like 12 years now, but who um, was absolutely full of life until the day until the day he died and constantly working. Um, He was a pulmonary physiologist, a scientist and a physician. And, um, he was constantly working on new ideas. So, um, it was also very, um, difficult to live with, um, (laughs) um, eccentric, um, and, um, um, quick to anger, quick to forgive. Um, I think I was less so in the latter when I was a child, I was pretty stubborn. Um, but that personality, that kind of magnetism and charisma but also a kind of a never give up energy is what was extremely familiar to me, um, growing up. And that is really what I saw mirrored. I felt in, in, so in, in the people whose work I ended up, um, exploring. So there really was in some sense, I suppose, uh, you know, there was that sort of family, family kind of, um, experience that, that undergirded everything. But, um, I think all of us as readers of fiction, probably have a sense sometimes in authors um, we love, and I'd be curious to sort of get your sense of this um, grant, but are there, are there people you read who you think, I know this person, I know this writer better than other people. And I want to take ownership. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've had that experience. I I imagine you probably have. And that is, that is really um, the the people I ended up writing about. I, I felt that way about all of them. And of course I don't own them. Um, that's just, um, the kind of yearning, um, that, that one has, you know, when you, when you feel like you've, you've connected deeply with something, um, to feel that the person is speaking only, only to you. Yeah. Um, but Definitely. yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in my discipline history, co- we're constantly, <clears throat> um, encouraged to read into at least the intellectual background of the authors are reading, because it's often hard to fully understand their works if we don't understand, you know, where they're coming from um, especially intellectually who their advisors were, what influence they had on their lives, but also personal, their personal lives too. And so I can definitely, yeah. you know, see, see myself in certain authors or, or see, you know, resonances to people in my life um, in certain, in certain authors and their experiences. Definitely. in My
1: experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, um, that biography can do Um is to provide us the, the sort of a glimpse, um, of course, curated. Um, and, you know, that's why it can be helpful to read. You know, for me, I, I prefer um, reading a few biographies um, so that I, I really get a sense of, you know, what are the cross currents and what are the patterns. But I really do then feel like I'm kind of stepping into the, this person's world. And as you say, um, really, um, the, the more data you have, the, the better.
0: Definitely. Definitely. So, so you mentioned, you just mentioned your, your father's influence on this, on this book. And and it's someone who in the book you say is quote chronically hostile to despair. And so very much comes across and has, you know, resonances with a lot of the characters you show. But I was, I was wondering too uh, if you could talk a little bit about your mother's influence on this book as well, whom you dedicate the book to and, and who appears at at the very end of the book.
1: Yeah. So my mother, um, it was always the, the voice of, of calm and the voice, um, of, um, uh, I I was going to say the voice of reason. Um, I, I think, um, you know, um, she has a way of speaking, um, that reminds me of the way hummingbirds dart and flit. Um, So again, growing up, um, there wasn't, um, there weren't those long sustained whole notes to, to borrow from music as a metaphor. We, we always had, um, we had, um, grace notes and trills, um, and, um, 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 sort of flourishing cadenzas. That was the way we lived. But that said, um, my mother, um, was, was a tempering influence. And, um, one of the things I think that has stayed with me, um, My dad, um, did not suffer fools gladly. Um, and I, Mm -hmm. um, I think unfortunately that can be my tendency too. I, I, I'm not a poker face. Um, and, and so Mm -hmm. people see when I get impatient and like my father, I get impatient a lot, but my mother is far more patient. Um, she's a very forgiving person and she, I can remember her telling me when I was young, um, that there's, you know, there's, there is that we need to think that there are other gifts besides, um, Um, Intellection, and um, as I as I grew older, I realized that there are different ways to think about intellection, um, and that we that we need to think about ethics um, in relation, not just to aesthetics, but to science and and the ways that those um, are yoked. And that is that is something that I was interested in doing doing in this book. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and just kind of speaking on that, and what you're talking about that the sort of personal experiences and how many times throughout the book uh, you you know interweave this intellectual history with those personal experience with your own your own life your own reflections on your father and and eventually your mother and I have a sort of a, a bigger question or idea here and you know commenting on how this is such a unique work in terms of genre and in this blending of intellectual history and personal narrative essays and and first you know what inspired you to create this this blending this um interweaving of genres uh for this book in particular.
1: You know it's such an excellent question and um I um if I think about walking around it um and my first response would be to say you know I'm not quite sure um I just know that from the get go when I began writing um, essays that I distinguished as creative, um, um, from those, um, scholarly pieces, um, that I, that I have written, um, and, um, to a certain extent still continue to write. Um, although I, I can say that I've kind of gone over the dark side and mostly just write, um, <laughs> write, um, creative work at, at this mm. point. But, um, I, um, this is just how I began writing by yoking my own understanding with that of other people. Um, I think from the beginning, mm-hmm. I had the sense of, um, kind of reaching across, which is what, what any writer is doing on um, that sense of that when you write creation is about expression, um, and communication as well. And so perhaps that is one, um, one facet of the sort of genesis of this particular kind of hybrid form that I'm writing within is that in foregrounding or keeping myself in mind, um, I, that, that close connection I had with other with the people I was writing about, um, was easier to sustain. I mean, I think part of it too, is, um, that it felt, it felt right in the sense of, um, Understanding that, however, one collects data, you know that we that we are the that you know that I, that I'm the one collecting it, and that there's no truly objective um, locale. And I mean, I think even you know one of the things that strikes me about science is so fascinating. Is of course that's um, you know what one works toward, presumably is sort of double blind experiments. But it's always fascinating to hear people speak with conviction about particular theories and then to see them overturned and we've seen that um as you well know um better than better than me and if you know okay. i'm sure you could come up with the whole list in the 18th century of, of notions that have have been overturned um, and notions that were framed with confidence um so we think that sense of part of part of it is a little bit about humility and thinking, yes, we can look out toward at the galaxy. Um we can look out at the stars, but we do need to remember that we're looking at at the stars from a particular location in a you know in a little solar system that is not front and 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 central,
0: yeah, that's uh, that's definitely something I didn't even really think about, but it's so true in that you know, especially as academics, we are <clears throat> always taught to try to be objective and and to come up with the sort of objective truth but at the end of the day we are also conditioned to defend our theories and defend our our version of the truth as well so having that perspective you know that being very obvious of that your own personal perspective really is a a form of humility or a true honesty i think um and i I just had a, a quick comment because this kind of reminded me of a assignment that i had to do an, as an undergraduate for a history class and this is a shout out to my history professor Yvonne Fabella for for assigning this piece and and what we had to do for our final project was to write a historical fiction essay or a, a chapter a short story um, but footnote um, and, and and reference <clears throat> certain, um historical works that had read over the semester so this is a class on the colonial Caribbean so my historical fiction piece was writing from a first person pers- perspective on a um, maroon as a escaped slave who was fighting in the Haitian Revolution in the late late 18th century and so every time I sort of referenced his his tactics and his experience I would um, you know put put in footnotes for, for, for that and i just thought it was a kind of relevant to your piece but but just a a really good exercise of trying to expose and and trying to convey truth in a way that was very engaging and personal and 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 creative um so i thought that that was you know a a a relevant and, and and worthwhile project that isn't often done i think um in any um of this because of sort of the conformities of different genres uh, in the world today.
1: Yeah. I mean, that seems like a wonderful assignment and how gracious of you to, um, to shout out to your, um, to your mentor. Um, I, I think there is something to be said for, I mean, this is sort of contested terrain these days, you know, what, what is empathy of of what does empathy consist? Um, but, um, I, I, it does seem to me that being able to imagine another's life is crucial. Um, if we're going to, um, sustain um care for for others and of course you know that's something that we all that I think we all do want want to do we sometimes um when we when we get um when we get upset when we feel offended um we sort of close up seal up the self and and shore up, sometimes shore up the boundaries of the self but if, if we keep them open we're more likely um, to feel, you know, some. It, it's we're less. We're more likely to to be less corroded. So I think there's there's that kind of self interest, but there is also just the genuine um, sort of glory of imagining what life is like mm-hmm. um, for someone else, and that's a glory even if they're if that person's life is, if we see it as as very tragic, because there's again something that ability to try to understand and to try to imagine seems to me. Um, it's the trying that's important. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, we can, we, your teacher's sense that go back and call yourself to account and then come up with the references is, is really, really astute because that way, you know, you're, you z- we zigzag back and forth. Yes. To, to realize, well, we are not that person um, we can imagine only so far. But again, that, that, that sort of dancing back and forth across perspective seems to me. Um, really crucial and something we probably should maintain, you know, most of the time, Um, um, even though it can be, it can feel difficult, but I think it's a, it's a really worthy effort.
0: Yeah. And and, and on that point, um, did you, you know, uh, English of course is a different discipline from history and and, uh, and others. So perhaps it's um, you didn't experience this as much, but did you ever feel any pushback to this hybrid genre form from fellow academics or other presses or, or any, you know, um, challenges that you faced when performing this, this work?
1: Well, I, I probably would have, if I had, um, read this work, um, only or projected only for a scholarly audience. But Mm. from the beginning, I really did, I think, want to write for the, what, you know virginia wolf sort of says it's a common reader and you know people have lambasted her and reproached her for that because of course um you know what was her understanding of common and that word has so many um connotations many of them very derogatory but i guess i would say that you know the 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 reader who's interested who's curious who wants to read around and um travel from discipline to discipline so I didn't. I actually was very fortunate in that um, that that first piece that I wrote, um, I sent to the Georgia Review and the former editor Stephen Corey, who um, I cannot thank enough for. You know, he's really the person who brought this book into being as a book because he invited me to turn in the manuscript um, and to think about it as a as as a as a volume. Um, he accepted it for the, the Georgia review. And that was my first, um, um, creative, um, uh, publication. So it was a wonderful, wonderful way to start. So from the beginning, I think, um, but that said, of course, the Georgia review, um, is housed at the university of Georgia, as are so many, mm-hmm. um, you know, cr- uh, journals of creative writing, um, to, uh, quarterlies. So, um, so in a sense, there's, there's, you know, there's always been that sort of dual audience. And I very much hope um, that I can write across. And I, I, I feel, yeah, in terms of the people I've spoken with, I did check um, with scholarly um readers and experts in the in the various disciplines, all of these pieces, because I wanted to have a to make sure that I wasn't um making some sort of gross overgeneralizations or really, really stumbling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I found that the specific people I spoke with were extraordinarily open um and and interested. Um, uh, so I mean I'll you know, I'll have to see um what the Academy writ large um thinks but I, I think things have begun to change um in that you know, there are a number of people who have started to experiment in a limited way um with foregrounding the self um in um in scholar in scholarship. Um mm-hmm. so um you know there's still probably few and um um far between but I, I I think that for the most part there is um, genuine interest and in, and in acceptance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So so moving on just um to give our re- our listeners a little taste of the content of this book here, I was wondering if you could talk about a couple of the examples from the essays you read about and, and the characters in your story of people who r- refused to give in to despair and led to such tremendous achievement. So first, uh, can you talk just a little bit about Einstein's love of chamber music and his inspiration that he derived from Mozart?
1: Yeah, so um, I- Einstein... Um, like many of the figures, um, in the book, um, was, um, um, really, I think his life was sustained by music. Um, and, um, for Einstein in particular, um, Mozart, although I should say that also, um, you know, Saul Bello gave a speech, um, um, about Mozart, um, that turned into a, um, a, a, you know, a published, um, piece, um, and Rothko, Mark Rothko, um, painted pretty much only to Mozart, sometimes opera, sometimes other other work. Um, so, w- what I wanted to do was to think about um, how someone who um, thinks creatively to solve problems, you know, what, what their life would be like. And in Einstein, I, I really felt that the relationship between music and um, and physics um, that he, that he saw in, 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 and this is in the, obviously the lay literature that I've read. I I could not, there's no way that I could explore any uh, anything, um, uh, you know, with an equation in it that is (laughs) um, even a quadratic equation at this point is probably beyond me. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, that he, really understood his life in terms of music as well as physics. And I I mean, if you, you know, if we think about um, earlier writers, um, that sense of harmony, of balance, of interval, there are ways that music has of explaining the world and perhaps they're not so, so far away um, from, from, the ways that um, that scientists in, in general, and Einstein in particular, have of, of thinking about, about scientific problems. I think also, um, you know, it's that feeling life. Uh, music is um, really um, the language of feeling and we've all, I think, probably listened to things um, whose words we don't know or that are wordless and felt that they communicated to us in very specific and mm-hmm. distinct ways. And I think that's that's what Einstein drew for music, especially because he was stateless for so long, bounced around from place to place and knew that he would not really be returning home when he came to the United States. So, you know, you to think about um, uh, spending your day um, communicating in in a different language and ultimately probably thinking and dreaming in it is a way to shut off part of the earlier self, and I think that in, that music must have provided him, um, you know, with that with that right of return that he was denied, um, you know, by by the government, um, and that listening to Mozart in particular um, most likely um, would have been a, a balm and a solace in a way of returning.
0: Yeah, th- this is very anecdotal and probably not relevant, but uh, my parents were also convinced that. Uh, Mozart was <clears throat> good for the intellect, and so every morning before major uh, standardized test in middle school and high school, uh, they'd always play Mozart for me while I was eating breakfast. So,
1: oh, that's pervades. that's so marvelous! That's such a great anecdote. I've got to remember to um, tell that to my daughter. Um, um, yeah, um, who's who's sort of my um, editor and and writing partner. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it, it's, um, it's probably, it is relevant. I mean, in the sense of, um, you know, listening to music requires, um, from my, again, very limited understanding, um, many areas of the brain fire, um, at once. So it seems like the perfect, um, exercise if one has to then go in and concentrate, um, on an exam, which requires a great deal of, of intellectual, um, um, strength. So, and, and then there's something about, um, I think Mozart, um, you know, he's, he's, he's such a, uh, a feeling composer. He's, he's so, um, there's, there's such a range of feeling in his, in, in his music. And it's always tempered by that 18th century, by 18th century notions of, of balance and harmony. So it's so confirming, I think, to feel that you, you know, that a composer explores so many states of feeling um, but then, but then there is, there is resolution and there is at the same time, these, um, these, these gorgeous, um, um, harmonies that, that suggests that all is right with the world, you know, even if, even if that's not the case, but for moments, yeah. for moments. Yeah. Definitely.
0: Speaking, um, speaking of music and just since we're on that topic, um, could you talk a little bit about, about Gershwin, about your composer, George Gershwin and and his pace and vitality of the music, uh, which you say is, quote, too quizzical for artlessness and too charming for melancholy. So how is he able to, you know, resist this prominent war weary modernism and cynicism that you talk about that was, you know, so prevalent at his time?
1: I think Gershwin just was um, born with a phenomenal amount of energy and exuberance and, an arrogance, if you will. Um, but he was, he was phenomenally gifted. And so like Mozart who, um, um, and in that chapter 2 on um, Gershwin. I, I set up three short lives, um, Gershwin's Mozart's and then my brother David's, um, because mm-hmm. he passed away from lung cancer at 31 and, mm-hmm. Had about you know nine months to sort of realize realize that he was very ill, um, but um, Gershwin um, uh, be- became famous at a at a very young age, like Mozart. I, I think um, he knew that he was very gifted, and that would have been a, a spur. Um, he was the child of immigrants. And that is something else that I really wanted to explore in the book as a whole was the contributions of immigrants to um, to, to U.S. life. Mm-hmm. And and Gershwin had um, that volatile, but I think exuberant mix of accents and languages growing up. His parents spoke in very thickly accented English. And so for a musician, you know, sort of catch this, these range of tonalities, first of all, in in I mean as a child presumably that's what that's what we hear is the tones even before we understand the language that our parents and the, and the people we hear use we we hear we hear tones and inflections and so gershwin would have heard a great a great many so i think from the get-go he was used to sort of uh, balancing all of that i mean i think um he was just unstoppable he he just was um you know every uh, it seems um that every reminiscence and recollection i read about gershwin commented on on that fact that he just was extraordinarily um affirmative um um champagne you know all of Mm -hmm. the time that um um that said um you know one of the things that strikes me about the music is that it is it's extremely urbane um and um urban and urbane um and um i I think that's one of the things that makes the Rhapsody um, so remarkable, um, is, is that sort of combination of, of elements.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, um, you know, thinking of those three, those three people that you mentioned, Mozart and Gershwin and your brother, who all three of them were taken, you know, way before their time, you know, Mozart dying in his thirties as well. And Gershwin dying, um, from, I believe it was lung cancer, but for, for correct me Um, Gershwin
1: right. actually had a brain tumor. Oh, brain
0: tumor, brain yeah, tumor. And, yeah.
1: And, and he, um, he was in the hospital, you know, uh, because he had headaches. Um, and he, yeah, he chose not to have a spinal tap actually. And that would have, um, yeah. yeah, that would have, um, made clear that he had a brain tumor. Although at that point it's, it's hard to know. It might've already been too late. Yeah.
0: Well, well, moving to another one of your characters, Mark Chagall. Um, I, I think he this story really encapsulates a lot of the points you're making in this in this book in that Mark Chagall uh, escaped from the Russian Revolution, World War I, and the Holocaust, and yet was still somehow able, in your words, to, to paint delight. So if you just talk about how Chagall was able to take all of this horror, and still paint with paint with such energy and life uh, to his works.
1: It's really a remarkable phenomenon. Um, I, I think he was probably sustained by his wife Bella in in many ways. Um, he um, he has a wonderful. I, I would recommend this to anyone. It's it's called Ma Vie in French or My Life. And the tonalities of his own writing um, seem to me um, it parallel in many ways the um, the 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 quality of tenderness and the sort of sensuous kind of um, the way that 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 um, the the palettes are are very sensuous in Chagall and full of um, sort of. Often softly bright colors, greens and pinks and and blues. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So his he uh, I, you know it's it's a it's a really hard question to answer. Like how do such people not only carry on um, but find these inner resources? I you know when you when you learn about Russian history, and I'm I'm sure that Grant that you that probably have are very familiar with this yourself. Um, it's um, it's uh, remarkable to me um, that people are able to continue to put one foot in front of the other. But um, the life of its people, whether serfs in the 19th century or um, laborers in the 20th and 21st, um, maybe it's the you know, it's the shortness of that summer, that brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant short summer, because it's so much of the country is really intemperate. Um, it's, it's just such a glory. And perhaps that's what, um, perhaps that's what Chagall was after was the, the Russian, the Russian summer. I think the other thing that I would say is that, um, there is a way and we know this from, um, for instance, James Joyce um, writing U- Ulysses, which is also um, in so many ways a very exuberant book and one that is is a kind of a, um, a, a book that seems um, very affirmative of, of Irish life, even in its difficulties that it is often exiles, um, refugees, expatriates Mm -hmm. who create such tender portraits. Um, so, you know, the distance, um, is in a way, um, uh, produces that sense of infusion, I think, for, for the place that, um, the person is not. So that is probably also, you know, Chagall, um, went to Paris very early on because he, that was the center of the art world at, at his moment in time. um, that's where, you know, Picasso was in France too for a long, long period mm-hmm. since sort of the birth of modernism. So I think that that, that sense of moving from place to place and of choosing um, or of being forced to move in the end um, for an artist, you know, one makes the, the most of that, of that chasm. And in many ways, um, that's perhaps what Chagall was doing was, was trying to get home in his work mm-hmm. and choosing to see the, the parts of home that he wanted to see
0: yeah that process of exile um which is obviously so prominent in in the jewish experience and of nostalgia and distance and not taking those good things for granted certainly provides some logical explanation to how these people were able to provide provide such accomplishment and achievement and and verve and and positive beauty um in moments of such 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 terror and and depression
1: yeah i mean i think um you know, and this is something I I saw in my father. Um, he would, um, the, the temperature was always, well, you know, there's always a sense of, um, of being in an area where there are a lot of storm fronts. So Mm -hmm. the, you know, the barometer was wildly, you know, um, um, elevated or, or, you know, um, precipitously falling, but, um, my father, um, when he, you know, he would be desolated for a moment, and, but only for a moment. And then he would pick himself up and, and have another idea. And mm-hmm. um, I think um, that approach to defeat, to sort of say, well, this isn't really defeat. This is just a way of, of, of learning and of understanding that um, that this avenue isn't the best one for me to go down. So um, I, I think all, I, you know, I, the people I chose to write about um, were all you know similar in that generalized kind of um way of, of of approaching life and that um and and i think also you know what uh to give in to despair is 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 to for them was to was to not be able to work and they wanted so to work they had so many brilliant ideas and so um that that was a that was a release um from the difficulties of, of the, the present, and I think that's something that um, that I really, you know, when I think about the book now and in the work I'm writing now, that I feel very strongly um, that to remind ourselves, um, you know, that um, even in in difficulty, um, that there are moments of of um, of of beauty um, um, that that we can create. Um, I mean, you know, that said, obviously there are people. Um, that that isn't true for people who are physically so debilitated um, and emotionally so so distraught that they can't summon that energy. But as long as there is um, 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 the possibility of maintaining some kind of energy, you know, that's there's the possibility of of evading um, the difficulties in you know in in front of us at least at least for moments and time's so relative anyway you know what what do we choose to to think about um sometimes um um perhaps it's those you know as i mean i I can remember even and this this probably seems very anecdotal but um you know trips to europe um and you know what is it that i remember um just just moments um times of Mm. um just of of sometimes a quiet piece there of taking a walk, um, not, not necessarily the, the moving around from, um, monument to monument, but, um, um, we really, the way we constellate our life's work has, you know, again, we, we curate that. So we, we have, we can make decisions about that. And I think all of the people that I wrote about were really intentional in that way. Um, and just had a great deal of a, a force of character and, and personality and just, sort of just worked through difficulty.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you speak so, so well and so eloquently on especially these people, uh, these, especially Jewish um, writers and authors and, and artists, but you also talk a bit about uh, non, non-Jews and, and their role in this story and, and Mozart we, we talked about, but you also speak a lot about Dante and Dante's Inferno and, and some other people who are not Jewish. Um, what, what role do, do these people play in, in, in your book?
1: So I think that's, um, I'm glad that you raised that. And, you know, I wrote about Jews because they're people I'm familiar with, um, from my own family. Um, and, um, but, um, and that, and that, that, that the kind of my father's temperament, I saw reflected in some of these other um, Jewish musicians and physicists and um, writers. But um, you know, we—I um, think anyone who creates anything is always um, yoking unlike things together. And we live in a world um, where, especially now, um, where um, we can um, connect with people across across borders. So, um, I think, um, you know, for Jews in particular, um, who were almost always sort of considered a kind of a, uh, you know, uh, a population, um, with a, with a host country. Um, and I mean, I, you know, this is really the place for this, but I mean, you know, it's fascinating to me to think about, um, European nationalism and the ways in which it was soldered or, or right. sustained or, um. Driven in part by distinguishing the Jewish populations in the midst of of these nations, um, um, you know that, that that became one way for so many countries to distinguish themselves as countries to move from the position of, you know, the the sort of city states to um, to federations and imagine community. I mean, you know, Mm imagine community, you have to, you have to imagine someone outside of it in order, it seems Mm -hmm. in order to create community, which is a great shame. And I think that's what I wanted to do with the Dante and Primo Levi piece was to think about the, how remarkable it was that somebody who had been in, um, who had survived Auschwitz should, um, locate himself in Auschwitz itself, um, recalling, um, not um a, a Jewish chemist um, or a scientist, but a fellow um, writer and Dante who is a compatriot across many centuries. and that is just extraordinarily striking to me and the 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 sense of of um camaraderie I mean it's really it's by what levy suggests in um in the Auschwitz, um memoir is that it is by, reciting um lines um from um thinking about homer and thinking about dante and and homer's um mm-hmm. um odysseus's sort of voyage um that that dante picks up on uh, um was what allowed him to remember that he was a person um mm-hmm. even even while you know uh being so undernourished um and so um so physically abject, um, that, that, that the words of, of somebody, a Christian who was, um, creating a Christian, um, series, uh, series of, uh, worlds in the Paradiso and, um, and the Purgatorio and the Inferno. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to me such an extraordinary gesture of largesse that someone, who could be a uh, victim of the Holocaust would do that. I just was so struck by that. Yeah.
0: The, the last line of Dante's Inferno has stuck with me for a while. And, and I, I recalled it when I was reading your piece and, and roughly it translates, you know, it's at the very end when Virg, when Dante and his guide Virgil have ascended out of the final circle of hell and are coming back to the world and it goes, thence we came forth to see again the stars and the yeah. sort of journey from hell back to beholding wonder in the world and, and majesty and beauty, I think spoke a lot to, to your piece and, and to Primo Levi's journey as well, too, that you talk about.
1: Thank you. That's such a gracious and eloquent um, way of, of capping that part of our discussion. I really appreciate that, Grant.
0: Of course, of course. So at, at the end of the book, you have this fantastic call to listen um, and you note how that now that you're older, you can hear the grins as well as the sighs in Grace Paley's work. Can you speak a little bit of that final call to listen and is struggle and experience in your mind essential for helping us sort of sit down and, and listen better?
1: So um, that's a wonderful question. Um, When I first read Grace Paley, I was um, probably in my 20s, and I just sort of cocked my head. You know how dogs cock their heads when you speak to them in intonations they don't understand? And I I really could not get my mind around her. I didn't understand how to read her characters. They were so mixed. They seemed so flawed. They seemed um, not very romantic. Um, um, And then I heard her read, um, when I was, um, in my early thirties, um, and, um, the, the, the inflections that she brought, the, 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 there was a kind of question at the end of almost every phrase, um, that she read, um, that turned even harsh sentiments, um, into possibilities. Um, and that really, struck me. Um, and it was really in listening, listening to her voice that made me, um, that, that, that allowed me to see the, the nuances, um, in her, in her fiction. Um, you know, I think, um, as academics, um, we tend Um, you know, I think about going to talks and the strange protocol of going to talks, um, and, you know, people often nod, but also at the same time, they're sort of building up, um, arguments against the speaker (laughs) and I'm, you know, I'm guilty of that, um, as well. Um, but, um, I, I think, um, you know, to really, um, to let the person have their due rather than to rush to judge, um, is is crucial and i i think that so much of political life um you know on any side is is about performance again is about Mm. carrying banners is about um you know sort of in 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 loud voices offering slogans that's not really about listening that's about speaking Mm. Um, and when we read we have to listen Mm. Um, we have to hear other voices, which is, I think, one of the wonderful things about reading. And that's the same for looking at any, any art, we have to open up and just, um, and just let things wash over us. And I think that's, um, you know, it may not be, um, um, it may not seem like a, uh, you know, a metropolitan or an urbane way of being, um, to sort of act, um, with that level of mystery and curiosity. But I think it's absolutely crucial. Um, and I try to tell, you know, I, I, I try to tell myself that, um, to always try to, to listen, um, it, mm-hmm. it's definitely a work in progress and one that I've really just mm-hmm. begun embarking upon, but there's so much you can, you know, in the tonalities of someone's voice, you know that if you really get that, rather than the words they're saying, like what is the tone in which they are speaking? Is there a way to listen to that?
0: That's a, that's a great great lesson. And 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 besides that, that call to listen, and I mentioned a bit at the beginning, but as sort of the final substantive question here, um, in this moment of this new year of twenty twenty one, in in a year uh, of a past year that has been somewhat hopeful but also terrifying in a lot of different ways what do you hope that your readers will take away from this book in in this moment and any messages of hope or warning and instruction that you particularly want them to get from from your work
1: you know i I hope that um um it, it that they will um, remember, um, to, to never give up. I mean, of course there is at a point in everyone's life, um, when they're nearing the end of their life, whenever that is, when they, when they have to, when they make a decision often a con- often a conscious decision, um, to, to, to stop, um, stop working, to stop, um, breathing. I mean, that, that can really happen for people, um, You know, the fact that people apparently more people die, like, you know, in the early hours of the morning before dawn than any other time is is interesting because that's a difficult time for most of us, except my daughter who (laughs) stays up very late. Um, But I think um, I think to not ever stop asking questions. To, to, to not give up, to not assume that even when the road looks full of obstacles that there is no getting around them. Um, to think about the value of seeing from the fringes and from another person's point of view. And um, to think about the ways that perhaps venturing out of one's own field um, or one's own comfort zone can often produce really striking um um, ways of thinking and, and be a positive force for all of us. Um, you know, it's always a learning experience. I think those are, are things that I would want, that I might want people to take. And then finally, I think to sort of honor people who, you know, travel from one country to another, and that, that is really the you know, like it or not. I mean, that is still the story of this country and really of the world. We are a burgeoning population globally, which is clearly why, you know, there is so much fear. Um, and we, you know, what what it takes for people to cross national borders is, is tremendous. And to try to, um, you know, open our hearts to people and to to try to do the same in our own imaginations, even if we are not stepping foot outside of our, our door, I think is, is is crucial to be fearless in that way. Definitely.
0: Well, I, I really hope and trust that your readers will understand that and, and give them hope for the future. So the final question that we like to ask all our, our guests here at the New Next Works is if you could describe any new projects or works or essays that you have on the horizon for you.
1: So I'm working on a collection of essays, which actually is, um, I hope close to, to complete. And it is about, um, the elements. There's a quartet of pieces, um, on, um, the classical elements. There's a piece on water that is as focuses on deep sea jellyfish, a piece on earth that focuses on rock, um, a piece on air that is an ode to energy, which is about wind and a piece on fire that I, I just finished. Um, it's a, it's different in that, um, I'm looking, um, at, um, again, um, trying to change my own perspective, but this time by, and this is what so many people are doing is thinking about, um, the larger world and perhaps, um, resizing the human. Um, and then, you know, I, I think about, um, the work of, um, um, some Indian painters in like the 15th, 16th, uh, through 19th centuries, these beautiful, small, brilliant paintings in which you, you know, you see sort of a glimpse of the entire world and people aren't really always foregrounded. I mean, plants can be as big. Um, um, and that's really what I'm working on in this next collection is, is I'm um, thinking about the world around us. What do plants know? What do they do? How do they behave? Um, what do, um, you know, what are, what is life like for insects? Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, it's a very different collection, but, um, um, and I'm entitling it for now, um, an aria for insects and other essays, but that's, that's what I've embarked upon for the moment.
0: That's great. Well, I hope to see that collection very soon in print. Uh, and thank you. you, Yeah. Thank you for this wonderful discussion and engaging, uh, book. Um, which I think is much needed at this time. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: Doctor. It has been an honor. Thank you so much, Grant.
0: Of course. Stargazing in the Atomic Age is out now uh, by University of Georgia Press. This is our Grant Kleiser saying thank you very much and see you next time on the New Books Network.